Amen. So good morning. Thank you, Ashley. It's good to see so many of you. Uh, I hope everyone had a great week getting back to school. It's always chaotic, isn't it? Uh, so I'm just proud. Well, maybe not. I'm just proud of you for being here. So uh, thanks. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, we are back in Romans. And so we're going to finish this book together throughout this fall, uh, leading into Advent in November. And so we're just going to take it chunk by chunk as we go along. And uh, we come to Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, if you want to get your Bibles out and turn there, we'll read in just a minute. You're going to see Paul is changing directions. He is moving from theology to application, okay? And so if you, want to, if you want to look there, it's printed for you in your worship folder. We're just going to read a couple of, just a few verses this morning together. Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then down in verses 9 through 11. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. And, uh, and, or you can pull out a pew Bible or take your Bible out and read, read together. This is a, a seminal text for the Christian life. It really is. So let's read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then go down to verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Uh, This is God's word. Uh, So for 11 chapters, Paul has been teaching us what the gospel is. Now, beginning here in chapter 12, he is going to go on to describe what the gospel does. So there is the gospel, and then there are the results of the gospel, or the implications of the gospel. And they are not the same thing, but they always go together. And this is really important for us to say, because we we, uh, clear up a lot of confusion here. So, uh, as an example, social justice is not the gospel. It is an implication of the gospel. In other words, if you believe the gospel, you will do justice. But the work of social justice is not the gospel. It's different. They're different things. And so if, if you believe Romans 1 through 11, you will be living Romans 12 through 16. That's, that's the implication here. But you can't just skip over Romans 1 through 11 because without Romans 1 through 11, you won't be able to do Romans 12 through 16. Does that make sense? So as, just as it wouldn't do for us to say, you know what, we got through the doctrinal stuff, we don't really need that practical stuff, we'll move on to something else. No, we're going to spend time in, this, in these chapters, but in the same way, we can't, you can't just like skip over all of that and just jump right into Romans 12 and say, that's the really important stuff. You need both. You need both. And that's an important point to make. Christianity is not just a belief system, it's also a way of life. In Acts, the early church was called the way. So what set these early Christians apart was how differently they lived from the culture around them. The early Christian communities, they stood out in contrast to the culture that they were in. They had a culturally subversive set of beliefs and practices that caused them to to do that, to be in relief, to be in contrast to what was quote-unquote normal, so that they even were seen by the prevailing authorities as a threat at times. They were never mainstream. But this does not mean that we should reduce Christianity to some kind of moral code. It is much more than that. It is, it, it is it's, uh, why, excuse me, that is why it's taken Paul all of these chapters to finally get to the application. Think about it. Do you remember what I told you at the very beginning? In chapters uh, 1 through 11, that's a lot of pages in your Bible. There are only five times, I believe, I may get this wrong, so please don't like 
quote me somewhere and then I get in trouble. But it's, it's single digits. Single digits in the first 11 chapters does Paul ever tell us to do anything. There are hardly any commands. Because he knows, no, we gotta go, we gotta work through these doctrinal implications, you know, these doctrinal things first. Now, beginning in verses, verse one of chapter 12, all the way to the end of chapter 16, it's all commands. It's all imperative statements. He's got to the part where he's finally telling us what it is that we should be doing in light of everything he's taught us in these chapters before. So the, the implication there is that you have to get the doctrine right first because, at least according to Paul, behavior follows belief. Belief comes first. Which is why if you read carefully through all of Paul's letters, you'll see this is his prevailing practice. He starts with doctrine, whether it's Ephesians, whether it's Colossians, Corinthians. I mean, not so much in Corinthians, but in a lot of other places, Paul just belabors doctrine, 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 doctrine in all his letters. And then at some point he says, okay, therefore, in light of everything I've said now, here's the implication for how you're supposed to live. So according to Paul, underneath every behaving problem... It's a believing problem, which is why he deals with the believing first. If you're struggling with something, you have to go beyond just the behavior, and you have, to, you have to kind of interact with the belief that is underneath the behavior. That's the way you do sanctification, and that's a great piece of pastoral advice. If you get the doctrine right, in other words, it will lead you to behave in ways that are strange to the rest of the world. And that was the point of the Leviticus passage we read. It was... Also, the point of the First Peter passage, one of the translations of First Peter 2 calls the church a holy nation, and then it says, a peculiar people. Man, I just love that. I've always loved that. The theology of Romans 1 through 11, in other words, creates a radically alternate, subversive way of life among those who believe it. Because there are massive implications for the things that we say we believe. And the things we say we believe produce people who just live in a way that is contrary to what you would call mainstream in our, in our culture. That's what we see. That's really the teaching of this text. Now, what I want to do is just look. Don't worry. I know there's, there's five things in your outline. You're thinking, holy cow, we had six last week, five this week. What in the world's going on? Don't worry. There's only four, not five. I cut it down one. Uh, so, but, but we're going to try to be as fast as we can. But what I want you to see is uh, that the, the doctrine this morning is that Christians... Because of the doctrine of Romans 1 through 11, Christians live in contrast to the world because of four things, not five, just four things I'm going to hit. Really, the contrast between the way we live and the way, what, a norm, you know, what we would say a normal way of living is in these four things. Because of first, where we start. Secondly, what we do. Thirdly, why we do what we do. And lastly, how we do what we do. Actually, I'm going to switch those. Where we start, what we do how we do what we do, and lastly, why we do what we do. All four of those things really are what create this, this marked difference between a person who ascribes to Christianity and a person who does not or one that ascribes to some other belief system. Now, we really need more time than just a week on these two verses, to be honest, because they're so seminal, they're so key, they're such a good summary of the entire Christian life. So bear with me this morning. I've got too much to say in too little time. I'll be as brief as I can, okay? So I probably will talk faster than normal because I feel compressed, and I apologize for that. That's why we tape these things so that you can get better. So if you don't catch it all, uh, listen, and, and maybe that'll... So I just apologize in advance. Okay. So Christians, Christians live in contrast to the world for a number of reasons. The first is because of where we start, okay? So let's look at this first point. We start with God. Here's what I mean. Christianity is, in its essence, theological, not therapeutic, 
So in these chapters, Paul's going to show us how the gospel impacts all of the different relationships we have, okay? But the very first one, the most important one, what he begins with here in Romans 12, 1 through 2, is our relationship with God. That's what these verses is all about. In other words, if things are not right with him, then nothing is right. That's really the message of the Christian gospel. Gospel means good news. Good news, of course, implies bad news, and the bad news Uh, that Christianity offers to the world is that things are not right between God and ourselves. This is what the Bible calls sin and alienation. And it's much more than than, uh, doing bad things. It's an estate. It's a condition. It's a, a context. So we live in a state of sin, in a state of being outside of Christ, of being alienated from the one who has made us, the one with whom we've been made to walk and talk, the one who is like oxygen that our, that our lungs need, like the sunshine uh, that, that we need to kind of blossom the way the flower does after the rain. And so before you try to fix anything else, you've got to fix your relationship with God. That's the message. And that's, that's really a bad way to say it, to be, tr- to be honest, because the truth is you can't fix the relationship. He has to. And that's exactly what he's done in Jesus, in dying upon the cross, bearing the guilt and curse of sin, and in being raised from the dead with the power to heal the world and put all the broken things back together again. If you admit that you've made a mess and you ask him to save you from yourself, if your relationship with God is bad, then everything else is bad. But the gospel tells us how we can be made right with him through Christ because that is the main thing. And if that gets right, then eventually, one day, Everything else gets right, too. Now, I'll be honest with you. It's strange to pastor people today because their expectations are so different than anything in any other time in history. And it's so different from what's happening in the Bible. There's, there's a lot of times very little correlation between the kind of ministry you see in the Scriptures and what we, are called, we, what, what, well, what we find ourselves doing from day to day, uh, you know, in, in 2018. And, and it's a regular crisis of faith for me, I'll be honest. Because, in many ways, pastoring has become a sociological work and not a theological work. And what I mean by that is people come to church these days because they know they, they need a spiritual component to round out their life. Or they want their kids to be influenced positively. Or they're lonely and they're looking for friends. Or um, they've got some kind of problem and they're looking for a program that will help them. And those are good reasons to come to church, but they're not the main reason. The main reason that somebody should come to church is because you know you're a sinner and you're trembling under God's law like Christian in, in Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, Pilgrim's Progress. There's a huge burden on your back and you're desperate to be rid of it because it is miserable to not be right with God. It's like trying to breathe on Mars to be in that condition. And biblically, that's... that's where pastoral ministry comes in. Biblically, that's what the church is about, to help people with that problem. And yet, it's very few people come into my office or come into this place acutely feeling that problem. And that's a problem. The Bible says you need to be made right with God. And the only way is through Jesus Christ. That's Romans 1 through 11. And that's the biggest problem you need to solve. Don't worry about anything else until you've got that straight. But here's what happens. So Christianity is theological, right? And therefore, if that's the problem, then when it begins to get solved, then really the flow just goes the other way. Therefore, everything we do as people who've been made right with God in Christ is now Godward. It has a Godward direction, a Godward shape. And this is why the Christian life is here described as a sacrifice. Verse 1, present your bodies. Do you see that as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? 
Sacrifices were an act of worship. Present yourself a living sacrifice, Paul says. Means, he means Christians do everything unto the Lord for his sake. We live vertically, really, in all the realities of our life. So he, he says elsewhere in, in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That's Paul, Paul says that's really what Christianity is about. If you're a student, you don't study and work hard for the grade. You do it as an act of worship, as for the Lord, Colossians 3.23. Every part of your life becomes an act of worship. You take care of your body physically as an act of worship, as a sacrifice. You mow the lawn as a sacrifice, not for your wife or you know, children, but as for the Lord. You show generosity to others as an act of worship. You submit to governing authorities as an act of submitting to God himself. Every horizontal aspect of life has a vertical component. You parent... You parent for God's glory, not for your kids, because he's the most important thing, not them. You go to work for him, not for the paycheck. And listen, that makes Christians different than anybody else. Don't believe me. Let's think about this statement. If you can become the kind of person who does dishes as an act of worship, you are weird. You with me? That's weird. But it's exactly how we're meant to live. If you can work hard at school, not worrying about the grade in the college transcript, but instead the overriding desire of your heart is that God would be pleased with the work that you do as a student, that's different. And so a Christian is a person who has God in view in everything that she does. That's the first thing, where we start. Secondly, second, we live in contrast to the world not only because of where we start, but, but, but because of what we do, the kind of life that we live. So Christianity was unique in the ancient world. It was a belief system that made a claim on your whole life. So the pagan religions, here's what was really different. The pagan religions of the day, and even today, didn't really require anything from their adherents. All you, you just showed up and went through the motions at the temple, and then you went home, and, and it was a business transaction. You, you did whatever, you know, whatever the system said you had to do to get what you needed from whatever God, lowercase g, it was that you were serving. And there was really no expectation that when you left the place where you offered, you know, your sacrifice, that your life would be any different because of anything that you had done there. It was really, you know, there was no expectation of there being any impact on your life. And then Christianity came along, and it was so different because it said, if you believe these things, then you can't live the same way anymore. Everything has to change. The way you do marriage and family has to change. The way you do business has to change. Your priorities and the goals of your life have to change. And so the consequence of believing what Christianity claims is that everything is different because of it. If it isn't, then here's what you got to ask yourself. You've got to ask yourself if you've got the disease or if actually you just have an inoculation, a tiny little strain that presents a few symptoms, but in actuality it keeps you from con contracting the real thing. And it's a real danger. The Bible says that Christians are aliens and strangers in the world, which means we don't quite fit in. Really, it's much more than that. Christians are a subversive force because whenever the world zigs, we zag. Paul says, uh, look here in verse 2, instead of being conformed, we'll come back to that in just a minute, he says, be transformed. Do you see that? Be transformed. 
Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Uh, the word there is the word metamorphosis. It refers to something that changes forms. So my 18-year-old is just an older, more handsome, more muscular-looking version of his two-year-old self. That's not this word. This, this word refers to something changing shapes entirely and becoming something different than it was before. So the process of becoming a Christian then is not a decision. We have, we have made it so, and we've really messed people up in doing that. Becoming a Christian is not just a process of making a decision. It's a conversion. Uh, it's, the verb here is a passive imperative verb. I want you to think about that, okay? This is really weird. A passive imperative verb. So the imperative is a call to action. There's something we're supposed to do here. There's something for us to do. The passive means that we're not the one doing it. So we're being commanded to do something that we can't do. That we don't do. So the most literal translation would be something like, be being transformed. It's right. You don't just decide to become a Christian. It's something that happens to you. It's like the caterpillar climbing into the, to the you know, crawling into the, to the cocoon and then emerging as a beautiful butterfly. That's really what it is. I know I quote C.S. Lewis all the time. And uh, it's because he really is helpful. And here particularly he's helpful. In Mere Christianity, uh, in, a, in a title, a chapter entitled, Nice People or New Men, which you really ought to read. It's really, really fascinating. He, here, he says this. He says, mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. But God became a man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind. You hear that? Not just to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. He says it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but it's like turning a horse into a winged creature. Once he has wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped before. If you want just a little picture of what it is Paul's putting before us here, this word in verse 2 describing what should take place in our lives is the exact same word that was used to describe what happened to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was metamorphosed, or however you say that word, science teachers. There was something, I mean, right, he was there, and then all of a sudden he began to shine and was dazzling and was like looking at the sun. Of course, the Bible says, as you know, the Bible says there's going to be a day if you put your faith in Jesus, he's going to do such good work in you, maybe a million years from now, but one day you will be so sparkly and shiny and radiant and glorious that we will have to shade our eyes to look at you. But he's like, don't wait a million years. God's doing that work with you now. Be being transformed. So there's a tug of war being described here because he goes on before that statement to say, the contrast to that, he says, be being transformed, not being conformed. Do you see that, verse 2? To the world. And this word is in the same tense and voice. So it refers, again, to being acted upon from the outside. So the world that we live in is a powerful force. It exerts incredible pressure. If you've ever played with Play-Doh, right? You know, uh, you use the mold, you take the Play-Doh and you put it in some kind of mold and you, you make some kind of shape and then you like, you know, have a, you know, like a, a dinner, a plate of, you know, like food that has all the different, you know what I'm talking about, like all the different shapes. There's pineapples and hamburgers and all that kind of stuff you can do. And that, so that, that's the idea here, that there's this, right, you, you put the Play-Doh in the mold and then you squeeze it and press it and shut it and then when you open back up, it comes out 
right, in the shape of the mold. There's incredible pressure from the world to follow the crowd. We talk about peer pressure, but this is, this is cosmos pressure. This is world pressure. And what happens to Christians is that even though we don't believe the same things that the rest of the world believes, we still do all of the same things that the world does. We use technology in the same way the rest of the world uses technology. Uh, you know, we could go through a number of things. We have the same habits. So, in many ways, we end up looking like people who believe uh, very different things than we believe. We end up looking exactly like those people who have such different beliefs, even though we really don't believe what they believe. In other words, what you learn from that is our practices often trump our beliefs. Habits trump beliefs a lot of times. Culture eats, culture just eats everything for breakfast. But what we're told here is that Christians don't live by the world's schematics. That's what, that's what the word, if you're, if you're nerdy about that stuff, that's, that's the word schematics. We are non-conforming. We don't conform, we transform. We don't go along with the crowd. We're trendsetters, that's the idea. The culture depends upon the blossoming of unique Christian ideas and works. This is where public education and hospitals and all kinds of public works projects have come from over the, over the years. But it requires that we be different. That word, verse one, holy. We must not be a mirror reflecting back to the culture its own values and ideas. Instead, we need to be a window to show the world another way. We can't just look like, like everybody else, you know. There has to be something fundamentally countercultural about it. And I, and I really believe, I'm kind of on a high horse a little bit this morning, and I'm preaching to myself too, but this is really the besetting sin of American Christianity. This kind of worldliness. I remember years ago in a seminary class, Dr. Pratt, who was here a few, a few years ago with us, he said, you know, if you ask the average middle uh, to upper class American what their dream for their life is, they probably would say something like, well, a happy marriage and a few kids and a nice house and a nice neighborhood and a good job that I enjoy with a nice salary package that allows me to go on vacation and a few toys, you know, boat and nice car and whatever. And then he said, if you ask the typical middle upper class Christian American he said, uh, I'm afraid that the answer would be the same thing. It would be all of those same things, but maybe we'd add on this little bit, maybe a good church to go to on the weekends when I'm not out of town having fun. He said, you know, the American dream plus a little slice of religion so I can make sure to go to heaven when I die. We're two at home in the world. The world has been changed when Christians are not being pressed into its mold, but instead, as I've said, are blossoming and bursting forth with new innovations and ideas. And so the text is saying, don't play follow the leader. Be the leader. Don't be, don't be conformed. Be being transformed because transformed people transform the places they live. And this happens, we're told in verse 2, by the renewing of your mind. That means having the right definitions of truth and goodness and beauty. These are not relative Concepts at the end of the first Harry Potter movie, Voldemort says to Harry, There is no good and evil, there's only power. And I just want to say to you, that's wrong. That's the kind of thing an evil person says. The text says, Knowing what is good and acceptable and perfect is important. There is truth, and it matters. God defines reality, and knowing, knowing the difference is an important part of love. Look down in verse 9. Abhor what is evil. 
Hold fast to what is good, Paul says. That's a, that's a great summary of what I'm describing, the way that we are different. The way Christians are different from the world is we have different definitions. We seek to define evil by God's definition and then abhor it, and we seek to define good as God does, and we hold fast to it, which is why we need to read the Scriptures, have them and read them and sing them and memorize them for the renewing of our minds. But third... We need to keep going third, then we are, live in contrast to the world, not just because of where we start and, and, why, and what we do, but also thirdly because of the way that we do what we do. And so look down in verse 11, and I want you to see, Paul, really what's, what's behind this imagery he's giving us here is this, is this idea of, of um, sacrifice is really summed up, I think, in verse 11. That's why I included it. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So describing our obedience as a sacrifice speaks to two things. I think it speaks to the intensity of our commitment and to the, secondly to the totality of it as well. So intensity. See, if, you're, if your Christianity is just going through the motions, if there's no fire, uh, pray, would you pray for me? I'm, I get a chance to speak to about 100 high school seniors uh, tomorrow and Tuesday. Would you just pray? Because one of the things I want to say to them is these are all Christian. Uh, they go to a Christian high school. And I just want to say to them is uh, I want to say... Um, I'm just praying that I could break through and that they would see that, that this ho-hum, yawn and stretch, no fire, no zeal, no heat Christianity is not the real thing. And, they're, and they're, they, that idea of an inoculation is, an inoculation, right, is this, I get a little bit of it in my system and it presents a few, uh, it presents a few symptoms, but it's the very thing. It is possible to go to church all your life and go to a Christian school and be around Christian things and all that kind of stuff. And all that, that, that does is it gives you just enough to where you don't ever contract the real disease. And it's a real danger. If your Christianity is just going through the motions... If there's no fire, no heat, no intensity, no zeal, then it's not the real thing. I mean, a casual approach to Christianity isn't an option. It's not rational. I mean, given the truth of the claims of Christianity, there are only really two rational options. Either to decide that what Paul has been saying is not true and, and not important at all and walk away, or to decide that it's true and therefore it's the most important thing and you give your whole life to it and you become fervent. I mean, the word there, that word refers to boiling water. So we say someone is boiling with rage, right? It's no longer hidden. You can see it in their face. There's an intensity, and it's, and it's obvious. I mean, your, you know, our Christianity should show up in our countenance. It makes me think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. Remember those guys when, we first, uh, when they first met with the resurrected Jesus, who they did not recognize uh, he, he tells them how slow their hearts are. They're lifeless and dull and calloused and unfeeling and there's no passion. And then he begins to teach them. And as he teaches them, we're told they caught fire. Did not our hearts burn, they said. The prophet Jeremiah said the same thing. He talked about the word of God being like a fire in his bones. Are you on fire? John the Baptist foretold that Jesus would baptize in Holy Spirit and fire. Where's the fire? Where's the passion? See, intensity. But also totality. I mean, this sacrifice here is a burnt offering uh, from Leviticus, not a sin offering. 
Uh, Jesus is our sin offering. We are the burnt offering. With the burnt offering, what would happen is the whole thing was devoted to God. So um, with the other offerings, if you are familiar with the text, the priests would, would eat. They would cut off portions, and they would keep it to eat or to use. But with the burnt offering, the whole thing was put on the altar, and it was burned up. I mean, it was just completely burned up as a, as a complete offering to the Lord. And so Paul's saying the only way to serve God is to give him all of your life, your personal life, your family life, your time at school, if you're a student or at work or whatever, uh, you refuse to turn your religious life into a little slice of the whole pie. I mean, Christianity is not a weekend trip out of the city. But not only all of your life, but all of your person, your mind, your body, and your soul. Now, just note, note that Paul says we are the sacrifices to offer our bodies. Paul is very concerned about the body, chapter 6. The body matters exercise and eating well and good sleeping habits, those are important parts of discipleship. Really, where Christianity is lived is what you do with your ears and your eyes and your tongue and these sorts of things. He's saying, offer every part of who you are. Don't say you can have this, but you can't have this. No, every part of your life, every part of your person, and here's why. Let me just finish with this. Here's why this kind of intensity and this kind of totality, and it's because... Of, of what God has done for us in Christ. So we lastly live in contrast to the world, not just because of where we start and what we do and how we do what we do, but also and probably ultimately why we do what we do. What marks Christians and makes us different is that we believe at the heart of the world is mercy. This is the last point, mercy. Not, not natural selection, mercy. Listen to Paul again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. That, there's a certain logic to why Christians live the way we do. The apostle says it's our spiritual worship. You see that verse 1? It really is a bad translation. I don't know why, really, uh, both the NIV and the ESV translated that way. The word there is the word logic. It's logical. It's reasonable. It's the only thing that makes sense. That's what Paul's saying. So Christian morality is an echo. We do in response to what God has done. I wonder if you've noticed that reading 1 John this last week in our community Bible reading. Did you notice how many times there was this sense of he's done this, so we do this? He's done this, so we do this? I mean, so 1 John 3.16, he laid down his life for us. We ought to also lay down our life for the brothers. I mean, so there's just this correlation. There's a logic. Since God has, now we Right, And so remember, this whole passage here in chapter 12 begins with the word therefore. So there's something that comes before what Paul's talking about here that makes an argument for why we should do what he's telling us to do here. And what's that that's come before? Well, what's, what's Paul been talking about? Well, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. I like the NIV. It says, I urge you in view of God's mercy. The NIV picks up better what Paul's saying. He's been laboring to show that everything, life, salvation, everything, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so he says, when you see that in view, when you view that, when you catch a glimpse of that, when you come to realize that it's God's power and not your strength making your life go, when you begin to understand that uh, he gets all of the credit because he's done all the work, then those things kind of impress upon your soul and begin to cause you to live in a certain way as a living sacrifice. But there's uh, NIV and ESV says, the NIV says, I urge, you, I urge you in view of God's mercy. The ESV says, I appeal by the mercy. So is it mercy or mercies? Well, in the Greek, it's plural here. Our lives are filled with mercies 
goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, David's saying in Psalm 23. Our life is full of mercies because at the heart of the world is mercy. Life is not survival of the fittest. Adapt or die. Win the game. Be resourceful. Look out for yourself because no one else is there to look out for you. That's not what we believe. We believe, listen, we believe it is the heartbeat of God that is the force that pushes the planets around the sun. And his heart is mercy. And that word means that he's tenderhearted towards us. Our heart breaks, break his heart. I mean, if you call me on the phone, <laughs> you're going to laugh, but please don't laugh because I'm embarrassed to say it. But if you call me on the phone and I don't answer, it's probably because I'm in a meeting or doing something that I can't answer. But it, it sometimes may just be that I, you know, I'm not paying attention. But every now and then it may mean I just don't want to talk to you at the moment, okay? Right? You with me? Anybody else? It's just not a good time. I don't feel like talking right now. But... But um, if one of my kids calls, I step out of the meeting. Because, of course, I'm thinking, what do they need? Maybe they're in trouble. Are they on the side of the road, dead in a ditch somewhere? You know, I mean, that whole parental thing. Right? If one of my kids is hurting, I lose sleep. Listen, I lose sleep. It, I mean, it, I, can't, I can barely bandage a, a skin knee. Ashley has to do that stuff in our house because I just can't handle it. I cannot handle them being hurt. Just eats me up inside. That's mercy. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you believe that's God's heart for you? Everything he does in your life is mercy, which means everything that happens in your life is mercy. Thomas Erskine said in the Bible, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. In other words, Christians don't live the way we do because we're trying to earn God's love. We don't obey out of fear in Christ, we have God's love. God loves us. It has nothing to do with what we do. And so listen to the Apostle John. We read this past week. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. The why of our love is his love for us. So the motive for obedience is gratitude, not fear, not trying to prove ourselves. We love as those already loved. I mean, that's the only way to offer ourselves as a sacrifice pleasing to God. What pleases God is not our achievement, but our need. Think about that. The way to please him is to come to him to get and not to give. Because there's no other heart in the universe like his. Uh, let me just finish. There's a story of two brothers in Genesis, Cain and Abel, and both made sacrifices to God. But we're told he was only pleased with Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Why? Well, Cain offered the Lord the fruit of Cain's labor. This is an oversimplification, but Cain offered the, fruit, the Lord the fruit of Cain's labor, but Abel offered the Lord the fruit of the Lord's labor. Cain was trying to relate to God on the basis of his works. Abel knew that the only way to relate to God is on the basis of God's mercy, and that's the sacrifice that pleased the Lord. I mean, do you want to please God? Then glory in the gospel, and here is the gospel. We do nothing. He does everything. Now, we will do anything for the one who has loved us like that. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to the end of our service now, we do pray just that, that we would see the true magnitude of your heart and your love for us, that, in fact, we have done nothing, and you have done everything, and that that would just smite us, that it would put us in the dust, that it would just lay us, it would just lay our lives down, uh, on, on the altar of saying, Lord, whatever you desire, here I am, I'll do anything, anything 
because of all you've done for me. At the heart of our lives is the beating heart of the God of mercy. Forgive us for thinking. Continue to live as if today's up to me. Continue to live as if you're somehow holding out on us and you shouldn't be trusted. Ah, how that must just hurt your heart. Instead, uh, you've shown such great love to us in Christ. You've given us every reason to trust you, so help us. Help us to reach out to you and in reaching out to you, to give to you with open hands the very thing you desire. All of us as a gift. So that you might be glorified in us, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so he sends us now. Uh, as those uh, who have surrendered to him, to live every day. It's a living sacrifice, right? It doesn't mean you do it and then you're done. It means you do it and you wake up the next day and you do it again. You live an entire life of laying yourself on the altar. I'm not going to pronounce a benediction because we're not closing the service. We'd love for you to come and and, uh, celebrate these baptisms with us, but we understand if you have something else pressing. And to be honest, if we all tried to go, it would be quite chaotic. So... That's not an excuse to not come, but, um, but just please come and we'll be there for like five or ten minutes because uh, it feels like the surface of the sun outside right now, so we won't be there long, but please come, okay? Uh, but no, uh, even without a benediction, the Father is sending us into the world as his servants uh, that live lives pleasing to him, that glorify him with the fruit that we bear. So go this week in the power of the Spirit to do just that. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, you're dismissed.